Hello and welcome to the Booster Pack. My name is Rand and this is the show where we unwrap the stories and crack the mysteries of collectible games each and every episode. And today we are going to warp back to a time long, long ago, to a decade far, far away. The start date, well, let's just say it's the mid-1990s. That's right, once more we are going to be beamed back to that glorious first decade of collectible games and we'll be learning the origin of some of the most admired early entries within the genre. But... Before our journey materializes before us, I must mention that today I'm simply the pad one because the master, that is indeed our guest, somebody who is nothing short of a card game pioneer. Now, I say pioneer because it was only within months of the collectible game genre launching that this designer joined with their design partner and Decipher, a company that would be destined to be one of the biggest collectible game publishers throughout the history books. Yes, this creative mind meld of these parties led to one of the biggest early revolutions in the hobby collectible category. That is the advent of a major pop culture franchise being integrated into the world of collectible card games. Yes, that initial game, it would be the Star Trek Next Generation customizable card game and it's Success would see another major pop culture franchise join it by the same design team merely a year or so later. That would be the Star Wars customizable card game as well. And with that game, it achieved something amazing because only behind Magic the Gathering for most of its life, it was one of the best selling collectible games of its era. Now, as I've mentioned, joining me today is the co-designer of the aforementioned games and many more. They are also somebody I'm delighted to welcome to the Booster Pack because they are a US chess master, a respected author, and as I've already mentioned, of course, a five-star game designer. It is, of course, Tom Ronlick. Tom, how do you do? Thank you for joining me. It's great to be here. Uh, I'm really excited about some of the uh, stories that you might be able to tell us and stuff. You were involved in some of the earliest years of collectible games. And as I said, you know, did some pioneering work to bring, you know, outside sources from the gaming industry into this particular world. And I think many people have loved you for it. But before we jump into those stories, uh, why don't you give us an idea of when you were, uh, you know, just how you got involved with gaming professionally as well. It's not something everybody could do. So you tell us your story on that side of things. Well, I actually kind of backed into it. I, uh, was uh, studying to be a journalist actually at Oklahoma State University. And um, I was a chess, I'd just become a chess master at the time when a, uh, a local entrepreneur invented a game, a board, a classic type of a board game called Pente, which uh, uh, he was literally selling out of the back of his van and was getting a lot of attention. And he asked me to write a strategy book for him. So I did. And soon I be started working for the company while I was still in college. And the game, uh, this was in uh, 1979, 1980. And uh, it, it just grew every year. It was very popular. It became the biggest selling adult board game in the country in 1982. The year, the year before it got blown away by Trivial Pursuit came out the following year. But um, it was uh, quite a fun experience. It was a nice strategy game. And um, I, you know, I became involved with the company. And uh, after it was sold to Parker Brothers a few years later, I just sort of got into the game industry as a designer working with Roth Tesh, who was uh, also worked at that company and became a partner with me. And we, we formed a 
a independent design company um, uh, that worked with all the game companies, you know, Parker Brothers, Bradley, and so on. Um, we, we normally you can't talk to such companies directly if you're an inventor, but we had a bit of an in with them so we could show them product and, and we would occasionally license something and, and uh, we, uh, we did that for many years and uh, that for about 10 years until the uh, collectible card game uh, craze came along and then we shut down all of that to work on those. They can be incredibly labor intensive from what I've heard from other guests and I'm sure I'm gonna hear the same from you today. Now, um, my question then is, uh, you know, you said you had all these amazing connections in the world of sort of games and what little knowledge I have of uh, the company Decipher before it sort of became, uh, you know, the collectible card game juggernaut that it was for a time, um, was that it was sort of in that same sort of space. You know, there was a couple of games and stuff like that. Is that how you connected with Decipher? Tell me the story of how you connected with Decipher and uh, and uh, Warren Ho uh, Holland, who is obviously its CEO. Yes, uh, Warren, the, the, the name Decipher came from the first game that they produced. And uh, the Pente Games Company, when I was there, uh, made a deal with them to help promote that game, Decipher. It was a puzzle with a $100,000 prize for the first person to solve it. And uh, we, I met Warren then. We became good friends. He's a very interesting person, very creative. And over the years after that, I would, uh, uh, you know, show ideas to them and we license a couple small games to them. Um, one of my favorite games that we ever did was a game called Scratchies, which was a, uh, which is a, a game for two people using the scratch off card technology, you know, like lottery tickets. And I really loved that game. It was a disposable game, very inexpensive, but it was, it, they were really interesting. <laughs> That's such a cool innovation. The, the 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 name is very resonant to me because in a well, I originally am from Australia. I live in Canada now, but the but the lottery tickets in Australia are called scratchies. I don't know if it has any connection, but that's very resonant to me. I hadn't heard that, but uh, it was a, a a fun game, and uh, the idea for that, um, Raleigh Tesh and I, as designers or inventors, had a theory that. Um, one of the best ways to invent an interesting new game is to be aware of new technologies that are coming along. And uh, so this was an example of that. The scratch-off technology was fairly new at that time. And so I asked the question, can we figure out how to play an actual game with that rather than just scratching randomly? And uh, it turned out you can do lots of interesting things from a game perspective. And we so... That was a very successful product with them. Later on, we did a uh, Star Trek game with them that was a VCR game, um, uh, a game that used VCR videotapes while you played a, a regular board game. But every once in a while, the, the character on the VCR would come on and tell you to do something. And uh, this one was uh, one that's actually the cipher had made a deal on and asked us to design the game for them, you know, so they had made a deal with Paramount. And that was a few years uh, into the 90s. And because we had that experiment uh, experience with Star Trek at the Paramount Studios, 
um, a few years later when the collectible card game came up because of Magic the Gathering, we thought, why don't we do something similar with Star Trek and make a deal with Decipher and see if we could make that work. And that's how that it came about. That's amazing. I'm really fascinated by that history. And I love that adage of like, you know, making sure that you follow, you know, the, the newest technology, you know, VCR technology in the early nineties was relatively new. And I think I'm having a memory. If that video was hosted by like a Klingon or something like that, I think I had that game. That's unbelievable. I didn't know I knew your work before I knew your work, if you know what I mean. Um, but uh, the thing I want to ask then is that's an amazing, uh, amazing coincidence that you were able to thread this through. So what do you remember, you know, this new technology emerges for collectible games or collectible card games, which is, uh, I guess, the first thing you probably heard about was magic. Um, tell me about like your first time hearing about this new genre, this new technology, as we've put it so far, um, and what impact it had on you as a game inventor at that point. Well, it was huge. Uh, actually, I have to give the credit to Raleigh Tesh, my business partner, who uh, became aware of this. and. Uh, very early on um and he he told me he thinks this is going to be a big thing and i, I at first i didn't understand it you know isn't you know what's the difference between this and just a, a card game with a whole bunch of cards in it <laughs> i didn't understand the concept of of uh making your own decks and all that kind of uh strategy and uh or the collectability issue as well. And, uh, but he's, he soon convinced me of it. And um, we uh, immediately thought to, uh, of Warren Holland and Decipher since they had a connection. And uh, so it was the initial impetus. We did meet with Richard Garfield because uh, we were living in, uh, on Bainbridge Island, which is right across from Seattle. And the Wizards of the Coast was in Seattle. So we met with them at one point and um, they were curious as to what we were doing. And, and so we told them and assured them we, we weren't going to copy what they were doing. <laughs> um, so that's how the impetus of it got started in the first place. And again, it was a new technology that was coming along, this, this ability of printers to um print these sheets and collate them in such a way that they could have one rare card in, in each pack and so forth and uh it's very complicated i didn't understand the math of it for a long time in fact in fact we uh we hired uh darwin bromley from mayfair games who uh who understand you know very good technically at game designing he did a lot of of um different types of role-playing games and strategy games. And, and uh, he helped us figure out how the math of all of that worked. So that's amazing to hear, because obviously it sounds like you're leaning on other people in the collectible game space. Like, um, obviously, you know, you mentioned Richard Garfield in there, who's the creator of Magic, and you obviously probably met with him and his team to sort of discuss what the idea of a collectible game was. You know, it was such new, you know, technology at the time, you know, it, and, and such big work, as we've already mentioned. Um, it 
probably was great to get that, some of that advice early on. And, and Darwin, as you mentioned, was head of Mayfair Games, who would eventually make two very uh, interesting collectible card games as well. You know, SimCity they had the license for, and they also made Fantasy Adventures as well. Two amazing sort of games there. So it was awesome to hear that you're collaborating with the rest of the community. And it must be very interesting um, to, to sort of be part of this huge sort of almost like gaming revolutionary wave. Do you remember any advice that perhaps especially, you know, the team from Magic or, or Richard himself might have given you guys as you were embarking on this journey? Advice? I don't know. I think everyone was a little bit um, learning as they go. Even Richard, who seemed to have his act together, um, I think they, they were working out the, the kinks in it as well. Uh, it was very strange for us, I think, because we had been 10 years already in the more traditional game industry, you know, working with companies like Milton Bradley and Parker Brothers. And uh, we knew all the people in that industry and um, including a lot of the inventors who were independent. Um, for example, we were good friends with Sid Saxon, who was a Hall of Fame inventor, invented Acquire and many of the classic board games. And um, so that was the type of inventors that we were familiar with. And this new, this new product that became its own genre um, was completely different. It's much more mathematical, more nerdy, you know. And yes, it is very different from a, a shoots and ladders variant or something like that. You know, there is a lot of complexity and you mentioned math there. Obviously, Richard Garfield, the creator of it, was a, a, a math uh, doctorate or something at the time, PhD at least. And um, and he uh, would obviously use that combinatorial math that he was studying to sort of build upon that game, which is really fascinating. Now, what I guess I want to ask is, you know, you've sort of got this in with uh, a, a franchise, you know, uh, Magic comes out and of course the idea would be naturally hey this would be great if it was you know be it james bond or star wars or in this case star trek initially and you have this in already it's a great opportunity you have somebody uh at decipher like now tell me a little bit uh, about the relationship of like how decipher changed with this new product coming in like the learning and the teething problem and i guess the other question i have were it sounds like you were already a star trek fan at the time or was this something that was relatively new to you outside of this work you'd already done well, I was a Star Trek fan, but I was not a super fan. When I was in college, I had a roommate who was a super fan. So um, they would show Star Trek reruns on the TV every afternoon. And I would, we would watch it together and I would say, oh, this is the one with the Gorn. And he would, before I could finish that sentence, he would tell me what episode number it was and what the proper. <laughs> so I, I was, you know, I was a fan, but I was aware that there were people who were like grandmaster fans. That so um, when we got into the Star Trek project, I knew I was going to have to learn more. You know, and um, and uh, the Paramount actually helped us. They um, Michael Okuda, who wrote the Star Trek Encyclopedia, was there to answer our questions and. Uh, help us research all the lore and things like that that go on the cards and uh and and more than that um once we got in the into the project um well first we had to design the game but once that was done 
I got assigned the job of going through all of the tapes of all of the Star Trek episodes. And I had a great huge spreadsheet and, uh, and, and the ability to video capture individual frames from, uh, we, we got uh, special tapes from Paramount that um, had the time codes on them. So I went through all of those episodes with a fine tooth comb taking frame captures of anything that might be an interesting card, interesting characters, equipment, ships, you know, red alert signs, all kinds of stuff. And uh, that took forever. It was literally months. I was like in a cave doing that. And I, I thought I knew those episodes well, because I'd seen them all when the, during the first showing um, of the series which at that time had ended just a year or two before. This is in 1994, I guess. Um, but, you know, I just learned so much about the show. So you became a super fan by proxy, basically. You, you were almost the one who could name the episode by title by the end of that experience, by the sounds of it. But, you know, before we got to that level, um, you know, we proposed the project to Decipher. They loved the idea. They went with it. Um, one nice thing about Decipher as a small company, they can move quickly on something like this. You know, when we worked with companies like Parker Brothers, they typically take 18 months, two years to bring out a, a new game, you know. Whereas Decipher, we'd done like our Scratchies games I mentioned, that was done in a few months and at the toy fair ready for sale, you know. <laughs> and uh so they were able to move quickly on this, for example, and, and uh, get the deal made. And then we had to design the gameplay system itself. So yeah, obviously Decipher is, is an amazing, it's amazing that they could turn around these things so quickly and obviously adapt to this brand new technology that was coming in. So yeah, you did mention it in there. You mentioned the design of the game itself. Tell me about like, how, you know, as a, as a fan, but not a super fan, how do you approach uh, this entirely new genre? How do you approach bringing this entire world of Star Trek into game mechanics? You know, previously, you know, you said you designed things like more abstract games or a board game or something like this, but this not only requires, you know, knowledge of the lore, but it also requires the knowledge of like this massive state of how the cards interconnect and how the techniques work together. Tell me about like how you approached it as, as you know, sort of a casual fan at the time, what did you guys do, you and Rolly, do to like massage the Star Trek world into this game? Well, obviously that was the trick because the only example we had to look at was Magic the Gathering, which is basically just a, a fight, a battle between two forces. And that's not what Star Trek is about. You know, I pointed out we, we don't want to have a battle game. Star Trek is not very, there should be some battling in it, but it's not all about that. It's about exploration, right? And um, uh, my initial uh, point that I wanted to do in the design when we were in the, in, in the brainstorming phase was I wanted to capture the flavor of Star Trek. That was the word I used. Um, which was, uh, you know, the Federation exploring and meeting people, doing missions, um, you know, kind of episodic play, 
the feeling that you have, you, you could get your people on a ship that fly the ship over to this planet and do something and then fly over here. And so my big contribution was that idea plus the idea of what we call the space line, you know, which is uh, certain cards were planets that are laid on the table and form the terrain, so to speak, that the game will be played in. The universe, if you will. Yes. And uh, that was kind of my big contribution to the game design. I think it worked very well. And, and I want to say at this point before I forget that uh, even though Raleigh and I, with the help of Darwin and a few early play testers, did the, uh, the basic design, the whole Star Trek or, uh, CCG project was uh, a real team effort. And Decipher uh, very quickly started hiring some both Star Trek and uh, math experts to, to come in and help with that. Because as, as you mentioned, the, the problem with this type of game design is you're designing a universe. I mean, you're creating, I called it an ecosystem. You have, you build your initial set of cards and they, you can balance that set pretty easily. But you have to realize that you're gonna be having lots more new cards coming in with each new set that comes out and they all have to be able to work together. And Magic the Gathering solved that problem by making the old cards go out of use, right? And, uh, but, Warren insisted that we can't do that with Star Trek, right? It doesn't make any sense to, to do that, uh, especially since we wanted the cards to be collectible as well as playable. And uh, so we thought a lot about what the upcoming uh, sets would do. You know, we talked about having an alternative universe set and, and uh, you know, all of those things. And eventually we wanted to have integrate the movies into the system and so forth. Now, I have a couple of questions there. You know, you mentioned them before. Uh, did how, how was how was working with Paramount? You know, obviously Star Trek is a huge property. And um, before you sort of, you know, start to filter down, you know, your game idea, I assume you have to pitch it to them and sort of say, this is what I'm thinking of doing. Like, and I, and honestly, I think your design choices were very brave. You know, somebody could look at magic and go, all right, well, let's just do magic, but two battling starships instead of two battling wizards. But you guys decided, no, we want this exploration. We want this, you know, sense of wonder, this sense of grandeur that that's uniquely almost Star Trek, you know, presents. So tell me about your relationship, obviously, uh, and, and your experiences working with Paramount as far as presenting the game itself goes. Well, it's kind of funny because um, uh, the way, you know, Paramount, of course, is a gigantic company and they have a system for dealing with their licensees. And uh, you have to work within their system. <laughs> Early on in the project, Raleigh and I got in trouble because we, we called up Michael Okuda the, who works there is the, the big Star Trek expert on the canon of Star Trek. We asked him a bunch of questions and then we got called on the carpet and chewed out for going around the chain of command. <laughs> it's all hierarchy. It's like a Klingon, it's like a Klingon uh, society there. Right. Every time we had a question, we had to send it to Decipher first and they send it to their contact and that then they talked to Michael Okudo or whoever. 
And we, ought, we had thousands of questions because of the, the lore that's part of the game on the cards. You know, it, every card has a little bit of uh, trivia about the character or whatever, uh, which is just for fun. It usually didn't impact the game at all. And, uh, but yeah, the, you, you called it a brave choice and I agree, you know, when I proposed and pushed for this general design with the space line and everything, I knew it was a, kind of a radical type of gameplay and I wasn't even sure it would work very well. Um, but uh, Warren Holland is a very inventive person and he loved that idea. And he also was able to sell it to um, the franchisers uh, as, you know, for that reason that we were trying to capture the flavor of Star Trek and not just do a simple uh, exploitive, you know, game design. Uh, we wanted something that could last as well, you know, for many years. And uh, so he was, uh, he and the, the people at Decipher were very brave to go with that design. And even though I think they knew it, as time went on, it was going to be, start to become unwieldy <laughs> and uh, could, it, you know, cause a lot of problems. But uh, um, that, you know, Warren is a, is a terrific guy. He's, he's kind of an artist more than he is a businessman. And that shows in the, uh, in the quality of the graphical design of the cards, which, is, which we worked on. In, with a great deal of probably unnecessary care, <laughs> but uh, they, um, the the art department there, which is ran by uh, Dan Burns, was excellent. They had the best graphic computer systems. They hired a lot of graphical artists to clean up the imagery, um, and they just did a great job. I mean, absolutely. I completely agree. The art department did an amazing work on all of those cards and those are so visually sort of arresting and, and resonate with fans, whether they play the game or not. You know, you definitely gave it that collectible vibe. Um, now, we've also talked about some other elements in the game. You know, you were talking about some of the mechanics before, some of the brave, you know, I called it brave choices that you guys made. But tell me about what the experience was with you sort of play testing and iterating those sort of uh those sort of rules like what sort of things did you you know initially have in the game that might have had to get taken out like what happened when you started showing your design to people outside you know just you and Rolly and you know the sort of more intimate design team we had done a lot of play testing use our using our own handmade uh prototype cards and we were convinced that the basic uh format of the game was working quite well but we also knew that there is, because it was so uh, different, that there is a large uh, probability that there's going to be gigantic play holes in the design. You know, so uh, you know, because you, as a designer for a game like this, you walk a fine line. You want there to be a lots of different ways you can design your deck. Um, you know, offensive, defensive, tricky decks and all kinds of things like that. But you don't want there to be one that just crushes everything else, right? Be, uh, any um, major loophole. So you have to test that. And um, 
we, the original designers, me and Raleigh, were not the kind of people who could do that kind of testing. So the first thing the uh, Cypher did was they hired some uh, guys who were good at that. Uh, one of the first ones was uh, Bill Martinson. Uh, it was a brilliant guy. He, uh, he quit the job that he had because he loved Star Trek so much and went moved to, from, you know, moved there and took on this project. And he, he was uh, really the one who did a lot of that. Later, Tim Ellington, I think, and quite a few other guys did it. And the, the play testing would become more and more formal as, as the game went on. Eventually, we had uh, uh, invited some top uh, game players in this genre to come and, and see what they could do to the game, see if they could break the game. That was, we we're mainly interested in, you know, if there's a loophole in the rules, could just be the way the rule was written, or it could be that the whole concept the rule was trying to get at was not working, you know, and I don't remember uh, too much of that for Star Trek, I think it, it survived pretty well. It just needed a lot of tweaking. And, the, and the, those guys did all that because uh, uh, about the time that the, the uh, Star Trek work was winding to a close and we were committing to the game design, we started working on the Star Wars design. And I got transferred to work on that and didn't didn't see the finish of the work for the Star Trek design, really. Yeah, it sounded like such a busy period, right? Like it was so much obviously going on and so fast moving, as we've mentioned so far. Um, I wanted to call out, obviously, the playtesters did an amazing job. And, you know, there was a, you know, there's always going to be a couple of issues with these sort of things. But and people will be able to see this a little bit more if they're watching the YouTube version, a little bit more superimposed. But I'm going to show uh, Tom here just some of the, the artifacts that I've sort of got for this show. So I've got some of the original sort of playtest uh playtest cards here and stuff like that they're not the originals these are replicas of ones that playtesters have shared with me over time um but there's some interesting ideas here that didn't make it into the game obviously famously uh Whoopi Goldberg's character was in the playtest set um and didn't end up making it into the final set um and there's a couple of other really interesting things as well. Stephen Hawking, which I believe ended up becoming probably uh, Albert Einstein, possibly because of rights issues, was something that was in the playtest set as well. Um, and something else I really found fascinating, you guys were obviously wanting to not only inject a sense of wonder for the universe in the game design, but a lot of fun as well. There's a card here that I found in the playtest set that I especially wanted to call out. It's called Game Time. And the interesting thing about that is it asks the players to play rock, paper, scissors, and then the winner of a best of three ends up getting a uh, another turn after that one. So there's obviously some fun stuff in there that you guys were thinking about. Yeah, well, that, that's obviously a late night brainstorming card. That is there. <laughs> we uh, we tried to encourage that, you know, and and uh, encourage the playtesters to suggest cards as well. Um, you know, one of the things about a game like this, you have what we call noun cards, which are characters and ships and and those type of things that have a name. But then a game like this also needs what we call verb cards to interject uh, play, you know, so that you can do combinations, right? You're not just 
array, you know, not just who gives their ma major character first into play, you know, it's, you, you can, uh, you can use these special cards to disrupt what the opponent is doing or to create interesting um, tactical opportunities and creative uh, ideas for your strategies, you know. In a lot of ways, those are the most important cards because first of all, there's the ones that are likely gonna be broken at some point, you know, if they're too powerful. Um, but, um, they are the ones that grease the game and keep it interesting and also um, allow you to uh, fix things later on. If, you, if there is a card that's too far, too strong, you can make some cards that combat that in a, in a future deck. I do want to talk about that in just a moment. And we're talking about some of these great mechanical ideas that sort of, you know, that not just you guys, but the play designers came up with, you know, this interesting... Uh, collection of sort of things that you guys were so early like i think i haven't got the exact number down but i think you guys were maybe the ninth collectible card game to market in the us and and there was a lot of really revolutionary things in the in the sort of core system that sort of star trek had some things that games like magic hadn't had you know those pre-game setup you know we mentioned it earlier but that interesting space line where it sort of gives you the universe that you're going to explore throughout the game and like almost this sort of like a um almost like a bluffing element and stuff where you're hiding missions under underneath of that and sort of setting everything up and then playing the game it's really fascinating but there's a couple of other things in the game that i think is is really interesting and something that you hadn't seen in collectible card games previous to that really something uh that stands out to me is like and it sort of permeates through your other designs as well but like this idea of like location-based action you know uh not only uh, star trek but star wars also has this amazing uh location-based sort of system that you guys had and if you look at magic it doesn't really have that and and to a lesser extent the other games in the market didn't i mean spellfire had some relevance with like realm cards but i wouldn't really say that that was something that influenced you guys do you want to speak to you know something like either why locations were so valuable um other things like modal effects and stuff like that and everything sort of felt like this you were creating a board game almost out of this uh ccg engine do you guys have any uh insight or inspiration about where that sort of came from well maybe that's our board game background coming out a little bit in the play but i think that we were lucky to have this universe that had already been created for Star Trek by Gene Roddenberry. And it's such a tangible thing that he made that we simply had to bring that in. You know, it was, like I said, it was important to capture the flavor of the game. And in Star Trek, it's not a story that is about battle. It's about exploration um, and uh, all of the things that the Federation stands for and um, as well as the uh, the uh, the bad guys, you know, the Klingons and the Romulans, trying to, you know, similarly, we tried to get you the feel of those those characters in their cards. Well, that's something I love about the game as well. Like, you know, you guys infused a lot of the Star Trek philosophy. You know, the, the Federation is about peace, so they can't attack. The Klingons are about aggression, so they can. You know, it was something that's, again, like I said, very brave for a card game, where if you look at the other games at the time, basically the rule system functioned uh basically in a parallel way it was almost you were doing this asymmetrical design for your different sort of facets that's true it is asymmetrical but um it has a uh you know we tried to give it a rock paper scissors type of asymmetry where you can 
go with one of the three major affiliations. And uh, if you choose right, it may work really well against your opponent's deck, but you could easily choose wrong. So you, you could have a generalist deck. We wanted all these options, um, but uh, the, the whole idea of location-based play, I think is totally integral to Star Trek. And I don't think the, the game would have been as popular. The drawback, of course, is uh, it's a little bit complicated, a little hard to learn. You know, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of different cards. But I, I argued that it was also intuitive. You know, you should, you, you kind of get the basic idea. And then once you worked out the details, it flows pretty well, I think. I would agree with that. I do think that, you know, it makes sense, you know, like canonically, it's like, okay, so my, this is my ship. I'm putting people on a ship. You know, you've got to learn what the icons mean and stuff like that, but then I'm beaming down my team. If anybody has had the experience of watching a Star Trek episode, then goes into playing the game, there is an innate resonance that, that the game has that'll certainly be like, well, this makes sense, right? Like it's not as arbitrary or, you know, uh, abstract to say something like Magic the Gathering, where it's like, okay, I've got to understand like these sort of things. You know, I mentioned locations before and Magic the Gathering has locations in the form of land, but they are so irrelevant. But in your game, their flavor, their feel, you know, you've got these outposts. It's it's really quite fascinating. And I would love to be able to talk to you more and more about the amazing design that you guys did for Star Trek in particular. But we are sort of unfortunately running out of time. There's so much to talk about in this great expansive universe. So, you know, we haven't talked about some of the expansion or anything, but I did want to ask, you know, uh, what do you remember about launching that game? What memories do you have about sharing it with not just the CCG community, but fans of Star Trek who may have never played a CCG before? Uh, honestly, I don't really remember much about the launch because we were so busy. We were already working on uh, the future sets of Star Trek as well as the Star Wars stuff. And uh, I think it was launched at the International Toy Fair in New York, um, even though a lot of the marketing for this game went through, through different channels than the traditional game and toy stuff. But uh, uh, it did make a big bang, and and uh, uh, but I, I can't remember exactly how how we uh, debuted it. You'll have to ask Warren; he might remember. <laughs> I would love to one day, indeed. So, do you remember anything like? Obviously, you know, you sort of referenced it there before, whether it was uh, Red Alert or something like that. Do you remember any like that card in particular has a bit of a notoriety, maybe infamy by some players and stuff like that? Do you remember uh, the response to cards like Red Alert and stuff like that when uh, when you were sort of putting out the game? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, yeah, again, you have to walk a fine line as designer. You want cards that are controversial in one sense, right? So you want to, you want to push the envelope on some cards. And uh, for, for one thing, they, they all need to have uh, power or else no one will use that card, right? So it, you, don't, you just don't want to have a dead card that's just an interesting card that nobody actually uses. So you have to kind of push the envelope a little bit. And we would, we would have... Uh, Sometimes we had big arguments over cards. I, I mean, literally arguing to almost to blows over a card. And, uh, because, you know, Raleigh, Raleigh in particular liked to push the envelope hard. And uh, some of his card ideas were just way over the top, but he kept pushing for them anyway. But, uh, but you know, we, again, we, 
we knew some of the these cards were going to be controversial or broken. Um, we, we, you know, we tried as best as we could to make sure they weren't, but it was inevitable that they would be. But that's that's part of of the uh, as part of what goes on with these designs. Well, I mean, we can speak to you know, we mentioned how this sort of system works, this ecosystem works, and we can speak to, you know, we mentioned it before, but Magic the Gathering, you know, one of their most famous cards are called the Power Nine because they are so powerful. People talk about them, people want them. And it's something that, yes, they might, you know, sort of warp the gameplay, but it creates an excitement. It creates a uh, a, 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 a complete outlier in the environment. Outliers are very exciting for, you know, uh, scientists, for players, all sorts of things. So I think that in the environment that you guys are trying to create and the fact that you guys are trying to sort of keep this, you know, keep this leash on this giant machine, there, there is a, a ton of room for opportunity for cards like Red Alert and stuff like that. And and you sort of mentioned before, this is something that sort of came from a, uh, a community uh, question and stuff like that, that sort of came up from, from one of the listeners. And I'm going to just slot it in here because it's not something that we're going to have a chance to talk about otherwise. But I, I do want to sort of mention uh, Austin Chandler, who's a listener, asked me about uh, asking you how you felt about Decipher's approach to balancing things. You know, you said Warren didn't want to ban cards like Magic the Gathering was doing. It didn't want to remove cards from the play field. Um, so instead, things like uh, Arata and things like... Um, I guess colloquially they became known as silver bullets or sort of, you know, like fixed cards or shields or whatever uh, in different games uh, sort of came out to sort of specifically counteract, you know, big environments and stuff like that. What was your opinion on sort of balancing the system in those ways? On the one hand, uh, it created uh, our, you know, it followed our goal of not uh, ever having to throw out past cards because it was important to decipher that all the cards remain collectible throughout the whole thing. And it was just a design philosophy, but it did create, uh, as the game grew on, the ecosystem did become unwieldy. You know, it's one thing when you have a few cards that are out of balance and then you have a silver bullet card in the next set that the, the mere threat of it being in the game means you can't rely on this this one card that was over, you know, too strong before. But when, after a while, those became out of balance as well. There's too many of them. And um, so after a few years, I was out of the design loop on the Star Trek. I was working on Star Wars, but I, I talked with, with some of the, uh, the guys who were, who were responsible for Star Trek development and they were just pulling their hair out, you know, because it was it was difficult. And um, so it, it's ultimately it's hard to defend it other than, um, you know, that's what Decipher decided needed to be done. They were looking at the game a little bit more from a collectible standpoint than the player standpoint. You know, we tried to balance those two things, but uh, ultimately it become a bit of a problem. And then, you know, the, uh, the, the new player association, what do they call it? The, the continuing committee. Yeah. They seem to have uh, delved into that problem and come up with some good solutions. So that that's helpful. I just remember, <laughs> I remember walking into the, uh, the cipher uh, 
offices, you know, and there was a Star Trek room, you know, Star Wars room and the Star Trek room, those guys, <laughs> they, they had their work cut out for them because they had a list of cards that they needed to find a clever, clever way to fix them and remain balanced in the next set. And it was difficult. Well, it was a Herculean task. I'll agree with that. But at the same time, we should also mention, you know, there was there was some other stuff going on behind the scenes. Like when you guys embarked on this journey, you and Rolly and, and Warren, it was uh, the plan was it was just a Star Trek next generation game. You know, Paramount had given you the license for just uh, TNG and you guys had planned basically four sets to sort of be this closed environment, you know, and then all of a sudden, uh, obviously, you know, another company brought out a, uh, whom I spoke to recently, the designer of, um, brought out like a original series card game. And then, you know, eventually you guys were able to, uh, pardon the pun, but assimilate uh, the entire Star Trek universe into, into your game. So it wasn't something that was really planned. So there was those four sort of uh, outlined sort of TNG sets ready to go. And you guys sort of had the, uh, had the fortune or misfortune, depending on your perspective, of having to sort of incorporate so much more than was ever anticipated. Right. Yeah, we did uh, originally view it that way. And we had tried to anticipate what the sets would be after the initial set and had a pretty good general plan for that. Not that we had all the details, but uh, we had a good idea of what it would be like. And we thought that, um, you know, um, one nice thing is we had themes for each of these additional sets and the theme would introduce some new gameplay. And usually that creates an opportunity to make uh, kind of retroactively make cards that were too strong before simply lose power because there's a new things going on in the game, you know, um, that kind of naturally weaken it. And, um, but then as you said, the game takes on a life of its own. Uh, the, the ecosystem flows over its boundary into the next, <laughs> and it just, it, it just becomes a bit of a nightmare after a while. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know what else we could have done though, because uh, I can't imagine, you know, taking out some beloved cards. Now, the thing about the Star Trek cards as compared to a lot of others is that they are tangible things. You know, they're the representative of a beloved character, you know, and you don't want to just mess around with that because that is like, you know, uh, important to people. Well, to coin the term, it's sacrilege. You know, could you imagine if you had to ban the, uh, you know, Mott the Barber or something like that? Imagine we put too big a number on, uh, uh, on uh, Deanna Troy and we decide that her empathy skill is just too strong. So we banned Deanna Troy and that's not going to work. Absolutely, because you're creating a universe, you know, you're creating a universe that characters can live in. And, and, you know, that goes back to the original philosophy that you guys sort of launched the game with. Now, we don't have a ton of time left, but I do want to ask just about after that initial design, after, you know, Klingons, Romulans, Federation, you know, that first sort of premiere set, what other, like, do you have any memories of adding any sort of major additions to the game? You know, obviously Star Trek 
became famous for adding in, you know, uh, either, you know, later on a new sort of uh, affiliation or even a new mechanic wholesale, whether it be, you know, side decks and doorways or the Borg or something like that. Do you have anything, uh, any memories of those sort of later sets or anything that you were particularly proud of that maybe you contributed to? Uh, I don't think so. By that time, I was concentrating on the Star Wars mainly. And uh, I sat in on some meetings and, and uh, uh, there was a lot of brainstorming going on for those new things that were completely unforeseen when we did the original design. So I could only hope that they, uh, they would fit, <laughs> but uh, I knew it was going to be tough and, and that's why they were always pulling their hairs out. But uh, uh, I, I think they did a pretty good job of it. And, and uh, so... I think that uh, it is what it is. It's it's wieldy. It's uh, overly complicated. There's some very annoying cards that were that were in there. Um, but what are you going to do? You know, the alternative is is even worse. So we did the best we could with it. I think you guys are completely right. And I, honestly, I want to say, you know, it might be at times unwieldy as a sort of, you know, a structural sort of competitive game. It might be a little bit challenging to sort of get into, but at the same time, it's immersive. It's resonant. You know, it, it achieved the goals that you guys set out. You know, there's no reason that we should sort of sit back and be like, oh, you know, it wasn't this perfect competitive game out of the gate. It was 1994, as we said, you know, as I said in the introduction, you guys started this mere months after Magic the Gathering started. How were you to know what to layer in, what the lessons were? And later games, be it Star Trek, be it Young Jedi, be it Austin Powers, be it Animorphs, all of these sort of series, you know, you, you contributed and learnt each lesson and each one of those sort of improves on that particular capacity. But I think the charm that is still being played by players, whether it's uh, first edition or second edition or the continuing committee, there is an element there that resonated with people. And it, honestly, I obviously I survey a lot of collectible card games and not many of them have survived by the passion of the fans this long. You know, we're coming up to almost 30 years in a couple of years time. So obviously you did something right. Now, I mentioned it in there. We Again, we don't have a ton of time left. I wish we had. Initially, we had planned to talk about Star Wars and Star Trek on this episode, but we might just do uh, Star Trek this time and maybe we'll, we, we'll reunite for a later episode for Star Wars specifically. Um, but let's just stick it on Star Trek. My question is, later on, um, Star Trek sort of tried to answer some of these questions and the cipher tried to answer some of these questions and issues uh by in integrating a new rule system an entirely new game in fact called second edition were you consulted on that did you have any perspective on that do you have any stories about second edition or anything like that no i wasn't really involved with that uh understandable obviously you know uh Decipher had tried to sort of, you know, rein it in and sort of make it more accessible to people who are more familiar with that. But before we sort of uh, check out today, like, do you have any other great memories, whether it's, you know, convention memories, world championship memories, any other amazing memories about your time with the Star Wars property, uh, sorry, Star Trek property, and sort of the, the sort of game that you created? Because again, you know, it's still resonating with people to this day. I just want to emphasize again, the, the really thing, fun thing about it as a uh as a designer was the teamwork involved and the interesting people. Um, both in Star Trek and Star Wars, um, the, the, the people who worked on these games along with us um, 
like Bill Martinson and, and Tim Ellington and others, uh, they were all fans of the game. You know, they wanted to do right by the Star Trek universe. And, and I've been in, in the game industry long enough and worked with lo lots of different types of games. And that's not always the case. You, you, uh, you often see some company acquiring the, lights, the rights to do a game in a certain genre for a beloved franchise. And they put out a bunch of junk that just doesn't fit with the theme of the franchise at all. And I love what Decipher did. They made it a priority to be right to Star Trek and uh, do right by it. I think Gene Roddenberry would have loved this game if you know he passed away by then. But um, he uh, created this beautiful universe that was that even now the new series that's out. Uh, Brave New Worlds, I love it. It's, it's a return to episodic Star Trek, you know, and uh, um, reminds me of when uh, Next Generation was new, or I, I'm even old enough to remember when the original series came out. But uh, uh, I, I really felt good about being part of, of his universe. I mean, we felt we were contributing to it because we were allowing players to, to play around with not only with the characters, but with the stories that have been created by all the Star Trek writers over the years. And, you know, because each of those uh, planets on the space line came from a certain episode and the mission you're supposed to do uh, reflected that in, on that uh, planet. And uh, so you're essentially taking all the stories of Star Trek, that whole universe and and amalgamate them, you know, being creative with them as players. And, and I, I really love that aspect of it and the teamwork uh, because everyone there knew about that. Everyone had that philosophy that we were doing something special. We weren't just exploiting the, the, uh, the license that we had. We were doing something cool with it. And that was a lot of fun. So that's my best memory. <laughs> I mean, it's and what a special memory. And as we've mentioned already, there is people who are still playing uh, an, an iteration of your game literally 28 years later, and I'm sure they're going to be playing it 30 and 50 years. It's something that people have sort of started to gravitate towards because you guys weren't selling out the property. You guys were really trying, you know, whether it's Warren's visionary or your intent when you guys were designing initially, it is absolutely fabulous to, to see the love that this game has generated. And the fact that the community, you know, you mentioned it before, but the continuing community, regardless of the, you know, holes, much like Star Wars plots, you know, regardless of the holes along them, they're sort of willing to work with them because they love it so much. So before we go out, unfortunately, like I said, we're not going to have time to talk about Star Wars in this episode, but we'll get together and uh, and talk about that another time. We have two community questions to sort of go out on. Um, and I do want to sort of put those to you specifically. So uh, Alexi Smith asks about a specific card that she uh, heard about Um in playtesting, I, I showed some unusual cards before. I showed uh, the one with the paper scissors rock. And there was obviously another couple that in playtesting, somebody had mentioned somewhere along the line. But originally the uh, wind dancer card, uh, you guys had a special plan for it. Something that didn't make sense to the playtest team. Do you remember what that was? Um, I, think, I think we had literally a dozen different ideas for the wind dancer because that's such a... a, a really nifty little uh image that was briefly seen in that one episode 
And that's the kind of thing that you could do anything with as a card for its function, you know, uh, because it, it's, a, it's like a, a fairy or something that's not real. And it, uh, so it could do something magical in the game. And I think we came up with lots of different ideas, but I don't remember what they are. So she has given me a prompt here, one specific idea that, you know, you guys mentioned, obviously, perhaps it was during like an interview or something like that. Uh, she said that there was a <laughs> there was an idea once that only characters who would pictured smiling would be able to defeat that dilemma. Do you remember anything about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense, you know. That's kind of one that I would come up with. <laughs> I think it was by the sounds of the interview. Um, I, I'm starting to remember that now. Yeah, I, that was one of my favorite things was to find things in the cards that that weren't originally designed as a play function, but could be turned into one. And smiling characters is interesting, but that definition of who's smiling and who's not smiling was a little problematic. <laughs> I can certainly understand that. And obviously we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but there is a couple of little things similar to that in the Star Wars game I want to talk about when we get a chance to talk about that. The second community question I have today is um, is from somebody who is a, a great listener. I do want to uh, just uh, shout out them. Uh, that's Damon Reese. Uh, I do want to ask about one of the most controversial cards and in fact, the only banned card in the history of Star Trek uh, CCG is a card that came out with the first set called Raise the Stakes, um, which I don't know if people know what it does, but it's a card that essentially gives you anti within the game. Did you want to speak to what that card design was about, what your ideas were, and did you think at the time it might have to be something that was scrubbed out of the system? That's an example of us trying to um, take an image, uh, you know, the poker image, and do something that pushed the envelope a little bit, that that uh, was creative and uh, uh, you know it's a one one of those things that we argued for a lot of a lot of our ideas along the those lines never made it but that i guess was one that did and <laughs> maybe shouldn't have yeah but you know it's hard to tell in advance what ideas like that are going to work well and what won't you know and i guess that was one that was just too, you know, too much. Well, the interesting thing we should mention about historically speaking, you know, you guys were again, you know, this is 1994. And at the same time, Magic still had that anti rule where you could play it. And you guys were sort of working in this sort of voluntary way to sort of engage that, you know, one of the big feedback that Magic got in its, you know, almost immediately after its launch was this anti thing is not for me. So you guys were like, oh, well, hey, let's just have an optional version of it. But obviously in competitive play, those sort of things become an issue. And obviously they end up getting banned. But I think it was very innovative again to speak to the sort of bravery that you guys had when designing this game yeah it makes me wonder if we should have uh put an icon on the cards that uh meant that these were not meant for tournaments they're meant for just fun play you know something like that might, might have been a good idea uh, but uh those are things you learn after you've published the first set and you no longer have the option to do things like that. Well, like I said, in the introduction, I called you a pioneer. And by all means, you know, pioneers are exploring new territory like you and Rolly and Warren did with this particular game. Now, like I said, Hopefully we'll have a chance to get back together and talk about the Star Wars CCG at some point. Obviously that has a huge community that still loves it as well, but I've enjoyed talking just about a game that I honestly had initially 
no real love for the Star Trek license for, but when I started playing it a few years back or gave it a dabble, it really made me fall in love with it. And nowadays I watch Discovery. I haven't catched it up with a new thing, but this game sort of gave me the environment and the sort of understanding of what the Star Trek universe does. So to speak to what we were talking about before, it was a complete success. And again, you know, with people playing it 25 years on, uh, 30 years on, obviously everybody who is a Star Trek fan agrees with me there. Now, um, just to go out before we leave, did you have anything that um, we normally end up with cracking questions but we don't really have time for that now we'll do that in our uh, star trek uh, sorry star wars episode um do you have anything that you 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 know you're working on that you want to let people know about or anything like that well uh the last few years i've been working on a novel that might interest people um started uh partly during the shutdown for the covid but uh it was a novel idea that i've been literally thinking about for more than 10 years it's a science fiction story um, and uh, it's called CRISPR Dawn, named CRISPR being spelled without the E, like the uh, biological uh, things. And uh, that's uh, hopefully going to come out soon. And uh, I'll let you know, and you can spread it to your fans. But I think it's the kind of thing that a Star Trek fan would like, because it's an intelligent, uh, you know, uh, science fiction novel. So, um, I hope that'll be out soon. That's amazing. So, all right, I had no no idea you were working on such uh, storytelling and stuff. And obviously, if you're embracing the themes with that novel the same way that you embrace the themes with these games, I absolutely think that it would be uh, something that Star Trek fans would love. So um, what I'm going to ask is if anybody's a Star Trek fan, uh, subscribe to me on either uh, the, the podcast that you're listening to this on, the podcast catcher, or on YouTube. And by all means, I will post like a community uh, post when it comes out. Also, I'm available on Facebook and Twitter. And when uh, we have some more news about that particular novel from Tom, I will definitely make sure that everybody who's following me knows about it and try and spread the word as far as I can. Um, Before we get out of here today, I just want to say thank you so much, just not only for your time today, but also for all of that extra effort that you didn't need to put in way back, you know, 28 years ago or whatever it was, 29 years ago almost to this game that people still love today. Thank you so much, Tom. Obviously, uh, Roly isn't here to sort of accept that, but by all means, Thank you to the work that you guys and Warren all did together. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. It was it was fun to work on a pro- the project like this. And uh, I'm glad to hear that people still are playing it and having fun with it. Well, much like the show of the original Star Trek, the original Star Trek customizable card game is going to have that same legacy. And I absolutely love it. Thank you, everybody, for joining me. And I absolutely appreciate your time. Again, if you joined us for Star Trek, uh, sorry, sorry. If you joined us for Star Wars, that is going to be another episode down the line. Um, Hopefully not too far, but please subscribe. And by all means, you'll find out when that comes up. Thank you again so much for joining me. Goodbye from me. Goodbye from you, Tom. Bye bye now. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) Thank you so much. And until next time, remember, keep shuffling. And there you have it, our episode, or at least 
part one of our episode with Tom Bronlick. It was absolutely amazing to hear his philosophy of the design of the Star Trek game. And unfortunately, we didn't have time for Star Wars, but thank you guys so much for joining me. And of course, if you have any questions for Tom, it might not be too late to ask them. So let me know via social media, whether that's facebook.com slash ccghistory or twitter.com slash ccghistory. By all means, a follow on either of those platforms also goes a long way. Um, or via the comments on YouTube, if you're watching this episode on YouTube when it goes up first, or even if you're not watching, when it goes up let me know what your favorite star trek set was what your favorite card was let me know all about what you loved about the star trek ccg i love hearing people's own personal ccg stories as well um again also you can reach me via the booster pack at ccghistory.com and you can also follow me on any of my social media platforms including youtube to get a post about when tom's book comes out and i'm going to give you more details about that when it comes to hand so thank you so much for joining me for today's episode it has been an absolute blast remember if you're looking to start a collectible card game collection uh for maybe star trek or even improve on the one that you've got or perhaps even star wars for an upcoming episode that we'll have with tom check out category one games that's category one games uh which will be linked in the description they have a whole mess of different collectible card games uh from yesteryear that you can purchase you know just small collections they've got really competitive prices and they've got great customer service check them out they are available uh and instantaneous pretty much and do really good work so by all means check them out if you're looking to start a collection but otherwise thank you so much for joining me and thank you so much to tom for the stories he shared today until next time which might be very soon for a star wars conversation keep going.